So a quick note, I'm recording this the day after Christmas. I apologize. Almost everything was ready to go yesterday, but a few things got in the way, like Christmas Day and some technical mess and a weird case of Christmas fatigue. I was even going to do an extra podcast as a rambling solo essay on how Christmas gives you the gift of failure, but it was just depressing. I'll write it up and post it on the website sometime for other folk who find themselves all maudlin on Christmas Day. Otherwise, look, my office right now is a mess of empty cold medicine bottles and boxes, unread New York and London book reviews, which are seriously huge. Like, why do they need to be that big so that I can't stack them with all the other unread magazines? Anyway, and all the books I've started and not kept up with over the last couple of months, I can barely find my microphone, but at least the mess dulls the ambient noise. Point is, sorry, this is the second year in a row I didn't get the story episode out before Christmas. Life happens, and that's honestly part of my, like, authenticity, right? Anyway, all that said, on with the show. Oh. Beneath the minor keys, the majorettes and bells, sweet little girls with missing teeth seek inner peace within themselves. I'd like to share my Christmas story. Come on over. I once was haunted. Welcome to the Weird Christmas Podcast. I'm Craig Kringle. Every year, I think, maybe I should can the rest of what I do, that other podcast crap, the cards, the website, weirdchristmas.com, in case you're wondering, and just do the story contest. I also reject that thought each year, but I think it because this is without a doubt, by any subjective or objective measure, the best thing I do. This episode gets the most listens and the webpage gets the most hits. Although last year, the, the Krampus was a dame page, the lady Krampus cards gave it a run for its money. It's the top hit on Google for Krampus and women or female or girls or feminism. Winning that algorithm. Anyway, I don't feel bad about thinking I should maybe trash the rest of the stuff because each year the stories get better, I get more of them, and the contest call seems to go a little bit further out into the world. One day, the annual announcement of the stories and the categories will hopefully be part of the Pope's Easter address, which means I'll have to decide on the categories and the prizes even earlier than I've been doing. And that's a problem, especially since I don't know at that point how much I can make the prizes. Just to be sure, though, if Pope Francis decides to include me this Easter, you should probably donate money for the cash prizes now. You can do that at ko-fi.com slash weirdchristmas. That's ko-fi.com slash weirdchristmas. You can donate any amount you want, not just the old $3 increments that site started as. Someone also mentioned that you can probably just PayPal me at weirdxmas at gmail.com. That's weirdxmas at gmail.com, which, yeah, you can do that too. By the way, I should probably say that my attempt to do a Patreon thing just failed. You'll still hear it in the old episodes, me announcing it and whatnot. It's still up at the moment. I was going to shut it down, but then a few people signed up, and I felt like I should give them time to see what's up there. But please don't sign up for it, because I'm not doing anything else with it, and I'm going to close it down. 
Anyway, long term, I want every story here to get a pro rate, according to the Science Fiction Writers of America standards, which would mean about $12 per story, even all the honorable mentions and not just the winners. And I still wonder if I should just switch this to an anthology rather than a contest. The contests seem to get more attention. I don't know. No one cares, right? You just you just want to hear the stories. Before we hear them, though, I want you to know that I don't decide what stories get on the show and which will win all by myself. I have little helpers each year, and this year, by far the biggest little helper was Linda Radish. Now, you should recognize her because she's been a guest on my show twice for two of her books, and she has a new book about the odd history of Christmas baking that's coming up, and she was kind enough to talk to me about. I'll still put it out this year. She also just published her first novel, which is really cool. It's a science fiction, anthropological, Halloween-adjacent, Ray Bradbury homaging first in a whole series called Turn Left at the Moon Crow Skeleton. And while we were talking about that, I thought, hey, she knows a thing or two about putting words together in entertaining ways. Maybe she can help me read through the stories this year. And luckily, she said yes. And that was a wonderful thing because we had almost 600 stories this year. And she was so generous with her time and attention and input. And I just want to say that, Linda, I appreciate you so much for all the help that you gave me. A few other people did help, too, this year with the last batch and the winners, but Linda went above and beyond. So thank you very much, and you can thank her by buying her books and leaving reviews on Goodreads and Amazon and everything else. So, the stories. These are the winners of, like I said, almost 600 entries. Now, the overall winner comes at the end, but if you're dying to know the results, you can check out the website at weirdchristmas.com. The top post right now is the one with all the info, including the full text of each story and a bio on each writer. I asked everyone to include links to other stuff they've written, so please, 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 if you hear a story you like, head over to weirdchristmas.com and follow up on that writer. Follow their social media, track down their stuff, give them clicks and reviews, even buy their books. I'm getting a whole lot more experienced writers in the contest now with like real old-fashioned traditional publishing house published books. There are great indie writers in the mix too, uh, but no matter how they've done it, please support all these folk by spreading the word and reading their stuff. Because look, everybody when I do this is so generous with their time and recording themselves and being patient when my schedules go weird. It's Everyone's just wonderful. So there were four prizes this year. One overall winner and three category prizes. One was my sort of open-ended stocking stuffer category, which could be about anything at all. The second was a weird card category where you had to choose one of the weird old vintage postcards I post all year and write a story inspired by that. If they entered under that, I included that card on their story on the website. You can definitely check that out there. I'll try to describe them, but it's, of course, better to actually see them. And the new category for this year was to redo a traditional Christmas special in a very weird way. A special weird way. But what special means, of course, is up to you. And we're going to start with the winner of that Christmas special category. Now, this one went straight to an old classic. One of the first real standard Christmas TV classics, A Charlie Brown Christmas. Believe it or not, that's actually a controversial show. And it's become even more controversial as time goes on. And it's it's not controversial because of Token. I mean, Franklin, <laughs> the one black character that Charles Schultz put in the strip in 1968, if Wikipedia is correct. Nor is it controversial because of how it always talks about you know little girls having stereotypical traits or maybe, just maybe, shoehorning in some same-sex relationships with Patty and Marcy. I've even seen now some people saying Marcy was like a hidden trans shout-out. I don't know, but that's that's not what we're talking about. It's because at the rehearsal for the big play, Linus comes out and tells a story from the Bible about Jesus' birth from the book of Luke. By the way, you know neither Mark or John mentioned Jesus' birth, right? 
Luke mentions the shepherds, but not the wise men. Matthew's vice versa. Plus, Matthew starts the story in Bethlehem, but Luke says they started out in Nazareth. It's a whole thing. You can follow that rabbit hole if you want. There's like a good 1,700 years of writing you can catch up on to get up to speed on the debates and apologetics and biblical hermeneutics. Fun times. But I digress. Yeah, Linus interrupts the action of the story to give us a little sermon. And it's totally kind of drama queen. Music cuts out, the action stops, and you just see Linus talking on stage while he quotes the Bible. It's quote-unquote very serious. So yeah, anyway, this story picks up on the special right after Linus has sermonized for us. And by the way, almost all the authors opted to read their own story this year, so that's them unless I say otherwise. So here's the winner of our weirding a Christmas special category, The True Meaning of Cancelled by Josh Chilson. A hush seized the auditorium the moment the speech ended, a silence more awkward than the pauses that bafflingly separated every piece of dialogue. Technicolor faces stared back at them, unblinking. True, they were always unblinking, but this was different. A small sob broke through the stillness. It was tiny, but resonant. We were just having fun. It's Christmas. Mumbles turned into jeers. Was that the Bible? This is school. And network TV. Linus began to sweat. He held his blanket close. Schroeder tried breaking the tension with a jazz tune, but this crowd wasn't having it. Snoopy stomped on the piano, causing Schroeder to spin in the air several times before landing in a concussive thud. Finding his courage, Charlie Brown stood between his friend and the mob. He was just trying to help me find the true meaning of the holiday, Charlie said. You're all trying to take the Christ out of... At that moment, the roof of the school seemed to disappear amid a deafening thunder. The black of the night sky was replaced with a bright, milky white. A heavenly voice suddenly boomed from off-screen. Charlie Brown cowered, sore afraid. Linus, beaming, stood up. It's the Lord coming to defend us, Linus said. What do you mean, they have a point, stuttered Charlie. You say that speech was sanctimonious and sort of brought this whole story to an uncomfortable halt? And that as director, I'm at fault? And you say I should just lighten up and learn to embrace the new cultural norms of the holiday, including the mixed blessings of capitalism? And you go on to say our bewildering veer into religiosity is the only blight on an otherwise perfect secular Christmas special? Sorry, I mean holiday special? The light faded. The auditorium returned to normal. Lucy, with her typical boldness, was the first to speak. Wow, you really messed it up this time, Charlie Brown. Even Jesus thinks you're a blockhead. Charlie Brown lowered his head. Good grief. Now I'll sprinkle the other winners in here and there, but I want to be clear that otherwise the stories are in no way organized from worst to best or anything like that. I just tried to mix up genres and moods, doing that good old mixtape thing that most of us back in the like mixtape days tried to do to create the best mood and feeling and subtly communicate this or that. 
And honestly, look, no one else is ever going to pick up on that stuff. No one is going to know what you meant by following a cure hit with a Susie and the Banshees deep track or whatever. I know because I tried, but whatever. Point is, I tried to make a good mix of stories to listen to, but apart from the winners, there's nothing to divine from the order. So it's been warmish around Chicago this time of year. We're having a pretty mild, wet, 40s, 50s-ish degree kind of Christmas, which means I'll probably replace those festive pajama bottoms for shorts at some point. It's one of those Christmases where we're dreaming of a white Christmas rather than having one. Still, I'm probably enjoying the weather more than I would in this next story. Here's Negative Thinking by Glenn Matthews. One Christmas morning, we awoke to find a heavy fall of crows had smothered the world in a thick black blanket. The kids screamed in delight at the thought of feathered fun and gleefully rushed out to build a chroma. Rolls of feathers grew in balls of thick black wool until the crowman stood complete. Chalk for eyes, carrot for a nose, and chopped parsnips for a smiling row of teeth. They threw crow balls at each other until, panting and covered in blood and feathers, they lay supine, making angel wings. Then they posed for photographs beside their feathered friend, a testimonial that proved, when they were young, all Christmases were black. A Christmas morning to remember. The roast went in the oven and the church bells rang with joy. The faithful came and footprints gathered in the aisles like scattered feathers in an abattoir. We sang the hymns we always sang, then ran into the frigid air. Down the lane, cars tracked through the virgin crows, wheels spinning and churning up a thick, pink slush. Thirsty drains began to gurgle with the runoff, and precarious pedestrians slithered over gizzard slippy curbs. Clumps of crow fell in steaming lumps from overhanging branches, and excited infants screamed as blood slicked feathers tickled down their necks. Across the crow-bound valley, shawled in black, dwellings were huddled together like Greek widows stranded in a winter landscape. In the knife-sharp air, black-backed hills seemed almost close enough to touch. Once back home, Mother disappeared inside while we stayed out throwing crowballs until Mother called us in to claim our share of that other seasonal bird. With noses like bottled cherries, we rushed inside, shaking off our coats and crowing with delight as we smelt the turkey roast. Later, presents opened and spread around. We sat contented and roasted chestnuts in the glowing embers of the fire. Satisfied, there'd never been a Christmas quite like this. We looked at each other's faces, glowing and smiling in the firelight while outside the window a soft down began to fall, covering our tracks and muffling the world.
This next one's about something that's become a new tradition for a lot of people, and I know my kids, and I certainly had fun with it, tracking Santa on NORAD every year. They have, you know, apps and websites where you can even, on TV, go and look and follow him and things like that, like a radar kind of thing with updates, and it's really cool. Um, I'm just glad that things never quite got where, well, where this one goes. So here's NORAD Track Santa by Laura Grant. The man on the radio called out excitedly over the sound of carols in the background. This just in! Santa has been spotted over Eastport, Maine, our nation's easternmost town! Through the window, Jilly saw a few flakes drifting down. From the rug in front of the glowing fireplace where she sat, playing with her dolls, Jilly peeked over her shoulder at Mother, who smiled at her and went back to cleaning the mortar propped between her knees. Won't be long now, Jilly. Mother plunged the long-handled brush into the barrel of the mortar, scraping out the soot and gunpowder. The tinsel on the tree twinkled and whirled as Father banged through the door, bringing the winter wind with him. He stamped his boots, clapped his hands, and gave a sharp bark. Woo! It's a cold one! He winked at Jilly, then turned to Mother. Are we almost ready? He'll be over us in no time. Patience, dear, Mother soothed. He's only just now over Eastport. She carefully guided a shell into the barrel of the mortar, wincing when it dropped too quickly. Father grunted and ladled mulled wine into a mug. Don't want to miss our shot, darling. He eyeballed the cookies cooling on the counter, but Mother tutted him. The man on the radio piped up again. We have some news about Santa's sleigh. Chaos in the background, papers shuffling, harsh whispers. Sorry, folks, just getting the latest numbers. Santa's sleigh count is now in the thousands. The Department of Yuletide Security anticipates many more if civilian spotters cannot bring him down. Father snapped off the radio. Moments later, they heard the faint tinkling of sleigh bells. Mother turned white. She and father dragged the mortar outside. The fireplace crackled. Jilly yelped as a boom shook the windows and the lights went off. Seconds later, something large crashed onto the roof. A multitude of hooves scrambled down both sides of the house. Then, from inside the chimney, one immense black boot stamped down onto the fire, snuffing it out. So the second category this year was one I've done for a long time, which is taking one of the strange vintage Christmas postcards out there and ask you to base a story on it. And for anyone listening for the first time, that's how Weird Christmas got started. I got obsessed with weird old, mostly Victorian Christmas cards, which are chock full of just odd and unusual imagery that we don't think has anything to do with Christmas. And I post them online all the time. Fast forward a few years and social media viral things later, here we are. I still post thousands of them every year all over social media. So pick your favorite outlet, Twitter, X, whatever, Tumblr, Facebook, Instagram, whatever, go nuts. There's tons out there. This story is based on one of the many, many cards that feature clowns. Now, part of the reason clowns and jesters and harlequins are so common is that in England, Christmas pantomime has been a traditional holiday thing for a long time. Traditionally, the show has a couple clowns. It goes back to some even older 
Italian Commedia dell'arte stuff. And if you want to know more, go back to the episode on the M.R. James story, the ghost story I did, where we talked about that and Punch and Judy and lots of other stuff. But this card is something else. It's got a couple of clowns doing a kind of weird wheelbarrow gag where one dude is holding a wheel with his hands while the other is using his legs like wheelbarrow arms. People are looking on laughing and there's even a cop in the back looking maybe concerned. But it's the main clown's face. It's just really hard to describe. He's got these wide eyes and his mouth is set in this mix of a smile and somehow a nothing expression. This one you have to see for yourself. It's very, very disturbing. And by the way, all these cards, like I said, are up on weirdchristmas.com. They're right there above the story if it is a weird card story. And the caption on this one says, How are you tomorrow? Wishing you a Merry Christmas. I've always found that line pretty odd, and so did Chris Lilienthal. That's why we've got this story called, appropriately, How Are You Tomorrow? The Christmas clowns came when the sun set. They came on unicycles, juggling oranges, and calling out to us kids to gather round them in the middle of the lane. Oh, how we love their hijinks, the tricks and dancing and frolicking about. Their holiday antics always culminated with the clowns posing us the same question. How are you tomorrow? To which we would exclaim, alive, alive, to great laughter and merriment. Not all of you, the clowns then responded in sing-song unison. And that's when one of the village elders would step forward and offer themselves up as tribute. This was the price of the performance. One life to sustain the clowns for another year. And so it went year after year until that fateful Christmas Eve when I was just a lad of nine or ten. Not one of the elders stepped forward that year, none being so advanced in age as to be willing to make the sacrifice. This, of course, was very bad news for the rest of us because it meant that the clowns could choose. They ordered all the children into the middle of the lane, then surrounded us as they began an elaborate ritual that included dancing, chanting, and the juggling of oranges. It felt like a dream when I was selected. Three clowns bore me away, kicking and screaming, while my parents looked on in stunned silence. A constable waved his billy club in protest, but really there was little he could do. I thought the clowns would take me into the woods and devour me that very night. Instead, they brought me here, to this cottage where they have kept me for all these years. I'm so very old now, which may be the point. The clowns don't have a taste for the young. They prefer their tribute, like their wine, aged to perfection. The days are getting shorter. The winds are picking up. I can tell from my window. Tomorrow is near. Christmas is coming for me. And so are the clowns. Luckily, not every story I get is super heavy, and I always try to make a good mix of funny and dark. This next story is itself something of a good mix of that. It's another based on a special, this time A Year Without a Santa Claus, which has everyone's favorite snow miser and heat miser. Now, people always wring their hands about, you know, how well their favorite old Christmas shows are going to age. That's kind of what this one looks into. Here's Requiem for the Heat Miser by Michael Rosovsky. 
The heat miser came to, and the first thing he felt was the chill. His wrists were bound behind him. He recognized the Swedish teenager, Greta something, sitting across from him. She was usually chaining herself to some source of greenhouse gas and getting arrested. He had always considered her threats, something about his carbon footprint, to be the kind of thing kids put on social media these days. It was so hard to keep up. Others had come for him before. Oh well, some people had to learn things the hard way. He willed the fire to come forth and was surprised when the rope stayed intact. It won't work down here, she said. Haven't you done enough, Mr. Green Christmas, Mr. Hundred and One? Her voice dripped with contempt. Whatever I touch, he started to hum. I know, I know. Seems to melt in your clutch. Save it, fatso. He was unable to stop his enormous teeth from chattering, and his body shivered. Were there actually humans who preferred this feeling to the kiss of a flame? It made no sense. His breath hung like white fog in front of him. The imp-like teen tossed her pigtails and continued to shuffle her papers. She waved some graphs and diagrams at him. Change starts today, Mr. Miser. Ecosystems are collapsing, and the youth of the world will never forgive you. Greta blathered on about his crimes. The nagging superiority reminded him of his mother, who had also preferred the cold. She doted on his brother, a frozen, pointy-nosed wraith in a blue-striped sweater. The heat miser had left for the south on his own when he figured out that even Christmas was against him. The imp rose and walked around the table towards him. The snow miser had once told him that death was like going to sleep. It turned out to be much, much colder. I think a lot more people now know the Bafana legend and recognize her as a pretty well-known Italian Christmas gift bringer. If you don't, check out my conversation with Benito Sereno from last year about Christmas witches. Bafana is not technically a witch, though. The legend goes that she was too busy with chores to see the baby Jesus, and now she wanders the earth looking for him and leaving presents to other children as a kind of way to atone. So it's really kind of a sad origin for a holiday gift bringer, but I really like the way that Catherine Dow treats it in this story, Search for the Magi. Every year she showed up at our house with presents, candy for the oldest, a lump of coal for the baby. She would wait just outside the circle of light above the front door, shivering, leaning heavily on her broom for support, her feet protected from the snow by nothing more than house slippers. She called herself La Befana, and every year our conversation was the same. Is he here, the one, the Magi, we're looking for? Her accent had faded over the years, but it was still clear enough to identify her instantly. No, it's just us. Her shoulders would slump and her deeply lined face would sink even deeper into a morass of broken shadows. She would make her way slowly down the street, asking the same question at each brownstone until she disappeared from sight. This year, a series of blizzards has slammed New York. We'd been so overwhelmed we hadn't managed to do much more than push the snow away from our front doors. 
None of the sidewalks were shoveled, and the streets were barely usable. When we heard a knock on the door, we were shocked to see the old lady, Le Bafana, although we shouldn't have been. Her presence, the candy and the coal, had been carefully placed on our stoop. Her bare hands were violently shaking from the cold, barely able to clutch her broomstick. Is he here? She began. I noticed that her lips were turning blue. She wasn't going to make it if she stayed out there much longer. I should probably help. Why don't you come inside for a bit? I sighed deeply. I'll walk you home once you get warmed up. She shook her head and turned away, the picture of defeat. Okay, okay, he's here, I shouted after her. The Magi are here, the baby is here, everybody is here. Just come inside for a bit. She turned slowly around and looked me in the eyes. Her spine straightened and she smiled, her fangs lengthening as I watched in astonished horror. Finally, she said. Then she leapt. This next one's another card story. This card isn't as immediately threatening to me as the clown cards. The main thing here is a kid dressed in, what, maybe 17th or early 18th century costume. Very sort of fancy lad from that commercial. Is it Star? I don't know what commercial it is. But, you know, whatever. What makes it weird is that he's looking at, smiling at, even, believe it or not, a Christmas cracker that's almost as tall as him. Now, for my non-British folk, Christmas crackers are little presents that, like, everybody at a party gets, and you pull them apart, and they have a little pop or crack that sound like old cap guns um, that I don't really know if kids have anymore. But anyway, there's a little toy inside and some candy and usually a little paper crown that everyone puts on to look festive. Big English thing. Anyway, the cracker on this card, it's got a face, and it's smiling too. And what's weird about the card, though, is that we only see the cracker in, like, profile from behind while the kid is facing us and it leaves us in this weird perspective where we just can't get a good grip on the cracker's attitude intentions luckily Anne Kenyatel filled that in for us here's her story called the Christmas cracker five days before Christmas the Christmas crackers came in the mail I was so excited I bounced around the house when can we open them? When? I cried. Not until Christmas Eve, my mother said with a stern look as she took the box and hid it in a cupboard. For three days, I watched that cupboard with an eagle eye. I couldn't wait. I had to have just one. But how could I get one with my mother watching? Finally, the night before Christmas Eve arrived, I went to bed grumpy from my mother's scolding when she caught me peeking in the cupboard. I fell into a restless sleep and was awakened by a cold breeze coming in the open window. As I pulled the covers up higher, I saw it. I bolted upright. There in my bedroom stood a large Christmas cracker, its gold foil glittering in the moonlight. It lumbered over to me, stiff, except for its skinny arms and legs. In its outstretched hand, it held a small Christmas cracker. Here, it said in a voice that was neither male nor female. Take it. You've been good all year, haven't you? I nodded, too dumbstruck to say anything. I took the small cracker from its hand. I couldn't believe my luck. Open it, it said. With my heart thumping, I jumped out of bed, my bare feet landing on the cold floor. Go ahead, it urged, while I stared at the small cracker. 
It was beautiful, with red and green paper mixed with gold foil. It was the prettiest Christmas cracker I had ever seen. I pulled the ends, and the cracker burst like a firework, blowing off my PJs and sending me through the window into the maple tree. The large cracker tossed me its wrapper. It's cold out there, it said with a sharp-toothed grin. I watched as it put on my PJs and climbed into my bed. This next one is by last year's winner, John Wolfe. I always love it when winners re-enter. You may notice that no one's ever won twice in a row. Might be intentional, might not be mysteries good for the soul, but if his story last year was a glimpse behind the curtain of the stocking trade, this year's a glimpse into another world altogether. A bit less commercial, let's say. I hope you'll enjoy John's story this year called simply Tradition. David stood in the tilled field, that year's harvest gone and buried beneath snow. As the late winter sun warmed the frozen earth, steam rose all around, reminders of the great task ahead. He held his torch and watched his brothers, Andrew and Ezra, roll the hollowed oak tree across the field. It had taken days to cut down and prepare. Now it finally rolled home into the shallow ditch with a crash. Somewhere... A wood duck squawked. Ezra and Andrew had lit their fire when they came of age. Now, Pa explained, it was David's turn. Ready, Ezra called, while Andrew stuffed extra kindling into the ditch. David breathed. Next to the fallen tree, his single branch looked so small. Go on, Pa whispered. He struck a match, held it to David's branch. The dry wood caught, and the firelight drew David forward. He knelt in the snow, the sweet scent of wet earth filling his nostrils. He was eye-level with a large knot in the tree's side. Dried corn stalks and kindling awaited below. David would light them. He would be a man. The ash would be plowed under. Next year's crops would grow tall, but only if he did his part. A groan rose from the earth. The wood knot suddenly blinked, the circle within turning a startled blue. Something screamed nearby. David shot up, dropping the torch into the kindling. The fire ate greedily, filling the ditch with heat and terror. Come on, Pa cried, and hauled David from danger. Ezra and Andrew danced wildly around the fire. David looked at his father, the old man's eyes harsh and clear. Pa and David turned to watch that year's Yule log burn. Ezra and Andrew soon joined them and they stood together in the warm firelight. Good work, Pa said, and at that, any questions or worries David had floated away on the rising flames. He breathed in a cold, contented sigh. A man's breath poured out of him. A high-pitched sound rose from somewhere nearby, steam escaping wood or sap crackling. Another wood duck, maybe. There are tons of jokes out there about how Santa blows off steam after working so hard all night and all year and whatnot. Personally, I always felt bad for the work Mrs. Santa had to do behind the scenes, and I hope Santa doesn't take it out on her. 
Luckily, that's not what this next story is about, but it is a peek into those private lives, and um, we'll, we'll just hear the story. And this one's read by Daisy Shyglass, who helped me out last minute with reading it. She had a story of her own on the show last year. She didn't enter this year, or she'd probably have another one, but you can check out links to her other writing on the show notes. But here's her rendition of Christmas Eve at the Notel Motel by Tracy Fallenwolf. Ho, ho, ho! Gee, I never heard that before. Candy touched up her lipstick and fluffed her hair. I've got to get back to work. Same time next year? She eyed him in the mirror. Sure thing, Pops. He buckled his boots and handed her a small box tied with a gossamer bow. Most guys just leave the money on the dresser. Candy untied the bow, fished the 300 books out of the box and stuffed it into a bra. She didn't care for older guys, and beards usually creeped her out. But there was something about Chris. He said he wanted to talk. Have you been a good girl? Typical stuff. Some guys like good girls, some guys liked bad. But none of them just wanted to chat about it the way Chris did. And he smelled good, like snickerdoodles and milk. He had her sit on his lap, but all he did was ask her what kind of toys she liked. She charged extra for gadgets, but he said that wasn't what he'd meant and went on about choo-choo trains and dollies. She had a feeling he was a sailor because of the way he talked about his wife, said they were far apart and that he didn't see her much. Sounded like he'd been on a long journey and he carried a big green sack slung it over his shoulder the way she'd seen sailors do. When he left, he backed out of the room and laid his finger beside his nose. She had no idea what that was about. It must have been something he picked up overseas. Be good, he said with a twinkle in his eye, and don't forget to hang your stocking. Ugh, she hated stockings. Garters were a pain. After he left, she heard a clamour on the roof. This motel was a real rat trap. Her next date didn't want to talk at all. He stood there and cracked an entire sack of walnuts with his jaws. Whatever, buddy. Long as she got paid, he could bust his nuts all night long. This next story is by Dan Fields, who I haven't checked, but now may have the most stories on the show since I've been doing it. He's pretty, I mean, sure, he's at least high. I know that. Dan just has a sense of the off-center. It just works for me. And I love his other stuff, too, that I've tracked down and read. This is a good place for me to remind everyone, again, go look at the website, track down more stories and books by the writers you like on the show. One day, I'll be able to pay everyone even more, but I can at least browbeat you all into getting yield exposure by shoving links in your face. So, anyway, this year, Dan took a crack at redoing the afterlife of Dickens' Christmas Carol because we all want to know what happened to Tiny Tim, apart from him, as Dickens says, not dying. So here's As Good As Gold and Better by Dan Fields. God help us, everyone. To Tiny Tim, who did not die, Scrooge was a second father. This hospitality from the reformed miser proved expedient once the lad's first father succumbed to 
natural causes beyond the reach of philanthropy. The boy's miraculously restored health manifested secondary symptoms for which no spirit guide had prepared him or his benefactor. Tim's physical transformation gradually rendered the epithet of Tiny a macabre joke, next an obscene irony as his dimensions grew monstrous. The surviving Cratchits withdrew from their brother in fear, leaving him to his adoptive parents' exclusive care. Soon after came Tim's dreadful turn of appetite. By day they visited London's prisons and workhouses, where Scrooge's charitable ministrations were tireless. After sundown, Tim paid clandestine return visits, easing public need by culling the surplus population. The old man had purchased a drafty Bermondsey flat where Tim could hold his dark rites of consumption, followed by intervals of torpid sleep. The hunger always found Tim near Christmas time. As his will to endure waned with each year, something in the fatty crackle of goose flesh and roasting chestnuts rekindled his faith in the metamorphosis, whose greater purpose the ghostly emissaries had yet to reveal. Tim, who would not die, went forth by night for his own traditional feasting. Scrooge, who had touched phantoms, far outlived his natural years before expiring. His final generosity was to offer his ancient flesh for his ward's further sustenance. It was poor meat for Tim the Brute, though rich in spiritual significance. Leaving Scrooge's hat, frock coat and bones in Hyde Park as a Christmas Eve puzzle for the constables, he climbed the south tower of St. Paul's to await further signs. Alone and shivering, he felt the great storm of prayers vibrating the cathedral timbers. Did they beg blessings only once a year? He wished for understanding of this and other mysteries as the toll of bells gave way to the deeper thunder of a dark, undulating form which materialized near the base of the cathedral dome. Tim, who could not die, trembled at the advent of his third father. I occasionally do have stories you might think of as traditional Christmas stories. If by traditional you're thinking of a lesson of love and sharing and all that stuff that I actually do believe in, but I'm way too ironically cool and hipster to say directly, so this might be one of those. But it has an edge that I really like. The same way Mia really likes that box cutter in Evil Dead, if you know, you know. Here's the deceptively simply titled Christmas Dog by A.E. Stuve. The dog sat in a cold alley staring at the heavens. No one else noticed, or if they did, they didn't care. But he was shivering and alone, and it was Christmas. Hello, I approached, palm out. He side-eyed me before returning his attention to the sky. What do you see? I followed his gaze. The dog whined. What is it? With a sudden urgency, he leapt to his back paws and wagged his tail. Above us, far in the distance of space, a blue light exploded, sending streaks toward Earth. In the blink of an eye, a streak landed before us. 
Its glow faded, revealing a buzzing gray sphere about as big as me. My brain had trouble keeping up. The dog noticed. All dogs are leaving, he said in perfect English. This is my ride. Shock stole my response. We tried to help you, he said sadly, for so long. But there's just something. He studied the decay in the alley, the rotting detritus of the city, of mankind. Wrong inside. He hung his head and mumbled. What? I finally asked. There is goodness too, he said. It's arbitrary and conditional, but it's there. He cocked his head, a pointed ear flipped. Would you have stopped if it wasn't Christmas? What? All days are the same for dogs. I don't understand, I whined. Uncontrollable tears flowed down my reddened cheeks. The great old ones will be here soon, he said. They'll end it. My hands hung limply at my side. A keening grew on the wind, something like a howl, something like a siren. It came from the sky, the earth, the alley rumbled. A great boom exploded in the stars. We both looked up. The whole world looked up. What we saw was unspeakable. It was madness made flesh. It was a titan whose phantasmagoric monstrosity the human brain could not comprehend. It was the end of us. The dog nudged my leg. Reflexively, I petted his soft fur. You never answered my question, he said. What? Would you have stopped if it wasn't Christmas? Yeah, I feel like that one stings a little bit. So we're at the halfway point, so let's give out another award. This one's for the weird card category. So here's what you need to picture. First, this card looks like it might have been drawn by a third grader in map pencils. But it was actually printed, sold, and mailed, and all that. What you see is somehow both hard and easy to describe. Because what you see are three frogs, probably frogs, very likely frogs. But they're anthropomorphic because two of them are wearing shoes. They're wearing clothes, like a mom in a checkered dress with a yellow apron, and the boy and girl in like late 19th century clothes, maybe. Again, matte pencil, kind of, so it's hard to tell. They're, they're in a line, and the kids are each holding a ribbon or something from the one in front of them, and the girl's dragging something like a wagon or box on wheels. But the kicker is that the mom's carrying a giant Amanita muscaria mushroom, one of the big red with white dots ones I've talked about and you see all over European Christmas stuff. Pretty sure the giant cap you see on the right, too, is supposed to be pulled in the wagon by the little girl. It's odd because it's somewhere between, like, cartoon and impression. Like, so much modern art that, you know, intentionally tries to avoid realism. So it suggests, it indicates indirectly. And there are also a couple of things flying around, either mosquitoes or birds. No one knows. Um, it's one you definitely have to see. So here's our winner for the weird card category based on that thing. It's called The Holly Berry Ritual by Lisa H. Owens. The twins were born with hollows for eyes. It had been eons since identical tadpoles metamorphosed into toads on Christmas Eve. Frogmaster said twas a miracle, a sign of prosperity from Father Winter. The unsealing, Bullfrog's throaty jug of rum called the colony to order. Two primordial toads were retrieved from Hollyberry Marsh, tethered to a frayed shoestring 
and pulled with a final heave-ho to stand alongside the beaming parents, proudly displaying their pair of identical eyeless toadlings. Frogmaster swept in with pomp and circumstance, and the ceremony began. He hopped to inspect the ancients, his bulbous fingertips tapping four cast-iron domes covering the place where their eyes should be. His broad lips moved as he chanted and lowered his hands to pinch off pieces of their withered thigh muscles. Excitement pulsated throughout the colony when Frogmaster arose, his tongue snaking to test, then release the translucent flesh into the twins' eye sockets. Bullfrog riveted the arrival of four fair maidens carrying baskets of Christmas toadstools, and Frogmaster produced the royal zester from beneath his dewlap. He studied the toadstool harvest, settling on the less spongy bits. He held them high for all to see, then raked the toadstool caps across the grater, filling the toadling sockets to the brim, thus covering the ancient's sacrificial flesh. In turn, the cast-iron domes were stripped from the ancient's eyes. Their nictitating membranes blinked to reveal orbitals teeming with toothy tadpoles cascading from the orbs. Frogmaster impatiently tapped one webbed foot, waiting for the flow to cease so as to croak his blessings. The ancient's arthritic fingerlings creaked as they presented the domes to four fair maidens, who dropped a single albino hollyberry inside each before clapping them over the toadling's brimming eye hollows. Henceforth, the concoction would fester until the next manifestation of twin eyeless toadlings, born on Christmas Eve, which would ensure the colony's survival. The feeding, Bullfrog belched, activating the weaponized tadpoles who swarmed to devour the ancients before scattering to Hollyberry Marsh, where they'd multiply. Father Winter snow-flurried his approval as the toadlings were buried to mature and percolate until the next Christmas Eve miracle. This year we've had a couple of good science fiction stories make it in. I know I've complained before about how few I get, since they're mostly straight-up horror or, you know, quote-unquote weird fiction. Of course, I also don't specifically ask for science fiction, so I don't know why I'm surprised, but still, always good to throw a few of those in the mix. And this next one pulls it off very, very well. Here is Santa's Chimney by Trip Watson. Dear Santa... Mom says you'll come to Mars this year. I wasn't so sure you would, but she felt very sure. He's magic, she had said. I bet he can jet over here right after he finishes up in China. You didn't come last year, but I was the only kid here then. There's 20 of us now, so maybe you'll come this year? We've all been great kids, too. We listen carefully during Mr. Lang's classroom broadcast, even though I'm sick of listening to an adult who isn't even on the same planet as me. And we all work hard with the adults to make sure the crops stay watered and the base stays clean and tidy. They don't let us outside to do any maintenance on the shell, but I'm sure if they did, we'd help with that too. They say it's dangerous out there, and a wrong move could mean we'd all get sucked out, so I guess it's okay to leave that up to the older people. I'm sure you've noticed that sometimes I sneak out of my room through the loose panel, but I don't touch anything, I swear. I just like to watch the blue lights blink along the hallway floor. It's nice. It's peaceful. I asked my dad if he was sure nothing could get in or out of the shell that surrounds the base, and he said he was absolutely sure, zipped up tight. So I'm writing this from outside the airlock. I'll leave it open for you. I found today's codes on my dad's handheld. Sorry, I know that's not a good thing to do. And snuck out again. Sorry again. 
but I wanted to make sure you had an open chimney tonight. See you soon. So let's take a swerve from the surreal to the less surreal. This one definitely made me smile and still makes me smile, but I don't want to say too much. Just here. Crumbs by Kristen Proctor. Everyone blamed the Evergreen Terrace staff. Who but us would the elderly residents trust? When I asked, Harriet insisted in 80 years she had never participated in the relations implied by her positive test. Bernice listed her lovers, all quickly identified as past lovers, and eliminated as the source of this outbreak. Elsie scoffed, these things happen. Why ladies get all ze crabs? Snow crabs are ze best, Walter nattered, while the young carer nearby busied herself with paperwork. By the time Santa arrived at Evergreen, singing carols seemed the perfect distraction. Is he from a church or something? I asked, wheeling residents towards Santa. He's shown up here a few times, like the real Saint Nick out of thin air, smiled the young carer. Santa scratched his beard as he poured eggnog in cups and arranged sugar cookies on napkins. Then Santa serenaded a rosy-cheeked Harriet while Elsie and Bernice shared kisses and then hiccups beneath the mistletoe. Santa shuffled to Jingle Bell Rock, needing to adjust then readjust his red pants. This overheated care home was no place for dancing in polyester. By the time Santa finished Silent Night, even Walter wore a smile. Ho, ho, Harriet, I'll help. Santa extended his arm. An eye twinkle flashed between them. Technically, only staff should assist residents, but who was I to be a Grinch? Can you smell booze? the young carer asked. The head nurse, who after three decades at Evergreen remained phased by nothing, shrugged. Hand sanitizer, it's everywhere. Further down the hall, Harriet Whisper shouted, Santa, come sit on my lap. No way, gasped the young carer. Santa plunged his hand into his pocket with a vigorously clawing motion. Santa, I questioned, though I already knew the answer. That's no cookie crumb itch, the head nurse confirmed. Harriet's door shut. Should we, I started. Nah, tis the season to get your jollies. We can treat them in the new year. Now, do yourselves a favor and grab an eggnog, the head nurse winked, humming joy to the world as she raised a glass and herded residents down the hall. I was glad I got a ghost story this year that I really liked that somehow got a bit of the old English story vibe while also doing its own thing. And since it's a ghost story, it's appropriate that ghost hunter extraordinaire Dustin Perry offered to read this one for us. 
Dustin's become a really good friend, and I do hope you'll check out everything he's doing, whether you're into Ghost Hunters and Ghost Hunters International or not. He's doing a ton of different things, even going on a speaking tour soon. But if all that falls through, he can always come read stories for me each year, even though I, I don't pay much. Still, if I had a ghost story category this year, this one would have won it. Here's They Whisper Our Names by River Lucero. There's a lonely place in the woods, an icy clearing with dead branches and dirt. We call it the Bright Place. Every Christmas, we sneak out after dinner and there's a new grave. We've never, ever told our parents. We go there to talk to ghosts. The ghosts whisper our names. They touch our ears. They kiss our faces. They tell us they love us. Sometimes they ask for help, but they don't need help. They're happy. Happy that we talk to them and visit them. They say their families don't know where they are, and that they don't like the gray man. They tell us not to keep his secret. And so we make masks. It's part of the game. They know who we are even with masks on. They can smell our souls, our aliveness. We spend weeks making our masks, we make them out of paper. We use rocks and strings and glue. We use sticks for antlers. We make ourselves look like animals. We feel secret and magical. We go through the ugly playground. You know the one. The one with the filthy, rusted blue bones and broken swings. Then over the small frozen hill. We sneak deep into the cold heart of the woods where no one ever goes. The snow swallows all the sound we make. Our footsteps are giggling. There's a fresh new grave in the bright place this Christmas, just like every year. Three ghosts to kiss us now, to thank us, to see us without seeing us behind our magic secret masks. That first Christmas, we caught the gray man while he was burying the first ghost. He told us that if we promised to keep his secret, we could talk to them. That ghosts only talk on Christmas and to good secret keepers because they miss their families. And that if we ever told our parents, he'd make us ghosts too. And so we keep the gray man's secret. We don't want to be ghosts. Okay, I'm going to be totally honest about this next writer. She had a story on last year that almost won the whole thing. And I don't know if I told her that. Um, her story this year was absolutely another contender. Uh, so were a couple of her other ones that didn't make it on the show, but I was only going to choose one. Uh, one of my readers, and I won't say which one, thought that she should win the whole thing. The only reason I didn't put her as a winner is because I know she's going to write something one year that will just blow everything away and if I let her win now she'll stop writing stories for me so is this a kind of weird backwards favoritism it, it might be this is one reason I really don't like the whole contest nature of this thing because best story is just so ugh, they're all so good whatever Carla Rudy let me just say that I get you and I think you get me and you're gonna write some truly amazing stuff as you keep going so I hope you will all enjoy this story by Carla Rudy called Tough Crowd The third graders buzzed with nervous excitement backstage. The Virgin Mary was near tears in her effort to locate her shawl, 
The flock of lambs were deep into character, as they only communicated with ma. Joseph sulked in the corner because he only had one line. The two halves of the donkey, formerly best friends, were no longer on speaking terms. The three wise men used their staffs to play golf with the baby Jesus doll. Miss Randall scolded, Can we not maul the baby Jesus? The three wise men whacked each other with their staffs instead. Thank goodness I made them out of pool noodles, thought Miss Randall. She gathered the children at five minutes to showtime. Ma, said the lambs. Good job, said Miss Randall. You have all worked so hard, and you should be very proud of yourselves. The noise of the audience, waiting just on the other side of the burgundy velvet curtain, reverberated through the plywood set. It sounded off, a hum just out of reach of the human ear. The children's eyes grew big. Somebody whimpered. No need to be nervous, Miss Randall soothed. Remember, they can kill you, but they can't eat you. The children stared. Did she say, places? She bustled off stage. The opening music swelled up. Uncanny applause shattered the air as the curtain rose. Joseph, center stage, saw that the house was packed with angels. Seraphim, wheels of feathery wings and innumerable eyes, glowed in their beautiful and terrible glory. An archangel stood in each aisle holding a flaming sword aloft. The children got lost in the sea of eyes and feathers. Miss Randall gestured for Joseph to say his one line, but he couldn't remember it. The two halves of the donkey clutched each other. The three wise men wept. The Virgin Mary dropped the baby Jesus on his head. One of the archangels stepped forward to collect the baby doll Messiah. The Virgin Mary jumped back from his flaming sword. The audience all rose up from their seats and flew away. Hmm, tough crowd said Miss Randall. The next story, um, I, I don't even want to describe it. I don't want to set any expectations because getting your expectations blown apart is kind of what I think it might be about. So maybe. Here's The Blizzard and I by Caleb De Los Santos. I obey Wear this, the blizzard orders, and tosses my Santa hat. I stitch it to my head. Carol for me. I sing Mariah Carey and Charlie Brown dance. Chuckle like Kringle. I ho-ho-ho and recite reindeer until spit leaves my lips and I dehydrate. For days, I follow rules and Christmas requests until the blizzard pauses like a god at rest. What now, I ask the blizzard, uncertain if it still wants my submission. Hello, I ask again. It vomits white ash into my face and vision. Shoot your eye out.
it stares and spins in place. I never ponder the thought. The blizzard does not let me. Okay. I respond and reach for my denim side. My shrinking purple fingers, frost-bitten and de-skinned, fiddle inside my pocket until I fondle my pistol's steel grip. I stare at my weapon. It is now a candy cane, oversized, shining, and color-changing with every blink. It starts as classic red and white, twists into purple and yellow, and ends on gray and blue, like the ones Grandma fed to Blitzen. I lift the candy piece to my right pus-spoiled iris. I like your left better, the blizzard whispers. I obey and squeeze my fingers. I cannot find the trigger, I say, after trial and error. Then put it in. Okay, I say, and continue to obey. I puncture my yellow pupil with my candy cane. Snow and gore cloak my sight, and I melt into the floor. I scream and cry with my last good eye, while my tissue-twisted tear duct coagulates. I do not understand why, but it cries too, more and more until its cyclone-spinning icicles finally hit the floor. The blizzard stops and leaves, like Santa Baby after home invading. But despite its dissipation and the sun's animation, I am not free. I remain liquid for three hundred days, until the blizzard returns and freezes me again. Then I rise back to attention, like a snowman returning from summer break, and the commands begin again, and I scream again. Each year, the blizzard wishes. I obey. There's an image I post a lot. It's not exactly an old postcard. It's more of like a public service announcement that got kind of, you know, mini famous on the internet for a while. It's a warning about being aware of your tree as a fire hazard. And I've never seen the actual thing in its original context, so I'm not sure if it's like an ad for plastic trees or a warning not to use candles or certain kinds of lights or what. But when you look at it, on the left, what you see is a nice, normal Christmas tree. And on the right half, is like the torched remaining skeleton of a tree with the hellfires of Satan himself bursting out of the frame. And the caption says, is your tree a symbol of joy? Then there's a big font change or a blazing death torch. 
and it's cool. So that inspired this tale, A Timeless Holiday Tradition by R.D. Irizar. My eyes fluttered awake, and the realization set in immediately. I ran downstairs to find my younger brother and sister already sitting anxiously a safe distance from the tree. I giggled at our parents in their matching jalapeno print pajamas, watching from the corner of the room with cozy smiles. They sipped holiday drinks carefully from bright red mugs with tendrils of steam. A cold downdraft blew through the large vent in the ceiling and froze my bare feet. Everyone shivered. Go ahead, gremlin. Daddy sensed my nervousness. His words nudged gently. I walked over to the bright red sack and pulled forth metal masks with magic horizontal glass slits across the eyes. One by one, I handed the masks out, starting with my siblings. My parents set down their mugs to don theirs and double-check everyone had a snug fit. My hands explored inside the sack for the last item. It was heavy and cold to the touch. Cylindrical canister atop a metal frame. Double trigger, holy nozzle. A tube connected the back of the gas tank to the handle grip. Inside was the self-regulating flow control system. I unveiled the majestic flamethrower, a shiny new B-1000, solid white with sparkling silver and gold trim. Magical. My siblings jumped up and down with excitement. Daddy said controlled fire saves forests. Mama said just be grateful the landfills are gone, whatever that means. I tapped the trigger lightly and a brief puff of fire purred. The recoil was soft, a gentle beast. A skirt of discarded toys rested in the coal surrounding the tree. I silently whispered goodbye to my old teddy covered in patches. I pressed hard on the trigger and flames bellowed forth. The tree was engulfed in roaring flames reflecting in our visors. Old toys melted away. The vent kicked on, sucking the smoke through magic filters that ejected flurries of snow billowing from the roof. I smiled wide under my mask as I purged old memories to make room for new ones. We basked in the glow, filled with warmth and joy. Our last weird card entry this year comes from a Christmas card that's initially much less threatening, I think, bothersome than the others. There's a mug of something, probably mulled wine because it's steaming and red, that says a Merry Christmas. But then there are two roaches and a butterfly moth thing that make a mess of it all and splash it around. And one of the roach things is drinking the spilled wine while the other two are slurping up stuff from the cup. And the caption just says, full to the brim and running o'er. May Christmas bring thee plenteous store. 
and that caption provides the title for this story by Rosetta York, Full to the Brim and Running O'er. A heap of Christmas cards on the doormat greeted Thaddeus West when he returned home, late afternoon, from the British Museum. More unctuous greetings from his esteemed colleagues. He planted his snow-encrusted shoe square on a scene of four dead frogs, legs upturned on an icy pond, and slammed the front door behind him. He sloughed off his Inverness coat and set his top hat, gloves and cane on the hall table. He warmed the pan of purple-smoking bishop Mrs Carson had left for him and poured it into his white bone-china tankard. He carried it, steaming, through to his study and sank into his leather armchair. Only then did he turn his attention to the post. He tossed the slush-soaked frogs into his elephant-foot waste-paper basket. The dead robin, wishing him a joyful Christmas, with a dagger through its heart, clattered after it. A tart, fruity gulp from his tankard fortified Thaddeus through the rest of the pile, until he encountered Faraday's handwritten invitation to his Christmas lecture tonight at the Royal Polytechnic Institution. He'd be hanged if he'd sit through the chemical history of a candle after Faraday had snubbed his polite bow yesterday. Let the blackguard find someone else to swell his audience. Sudden excruciating pain made Thaddeus yelp. One corner of Faraday's invitation, razor sharp where a section of gilt edging was missing, had sliced his fingertip. Blood plopped onto the parquet flooring. He sucked his finger and gagged on its bitter metallic tang. He shook his handkerchief open and bound his finger tight before grabbing the tankard to swill the foul taste away. A scarlet stag beetle clung to the tankard's rim. He froze. It waved one leg at him and lowered its mandibles to drink the smoking bishop. A large rainbow-coloured butterfly fluttered down and sipped from the other side. Thaddeus's finger throbbed. Purple rivulets slopped down the tankard. Faraday was a jolly good fellow. He should go to his ledger and wishing a Merry Christmas. Thaddeus chuckled and flew round the ceiling in a kaleidoscope of butterflies. This next story, I don't know, man, it's funny, it's kind of tragic, it's even heroic in its own weird way. It's another one that's hard to describe, but I knew the second I started reading it that it'd be on the show in one way or another. And I don't think I can really figure out any way to segue into the fact that the writer is also an award-winning table tennis coach and player, but he is. Did that influence the story? Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) But here is Santa Drop by Larry Hodges. I'm Santa Claus, cried the falling raindrop, who will call Santa Drop. No, said the other falling raindrop, who will call Doubting Drop. You are a raindrop. And this is my magic sleigh. No, that's a bit of paper that must have been sucked into the sky by a rising warm air mass. 
Tonight I'm delivering toys to children all over the world. Those aren't toys. Those are cloud condensation nuclei, the bits of dust we condensed about when we were children a few minutes ago. And you won't be delivering anything tonight. We fell from a rain cloud, and in two minutes we'll hit the ground and go splat. And those are my eight magic reindeer. Uh, that's a swarm of mayflies of the order Ephemeroptera that must have been sucked up by that rising warm air mass. They got drenched in the rain and are now falling with us. And it's, it's spelled R-E-I-N. You guys only have two-minute lifespans? Asked one of the mayflies, or reindeer, who we'll call Splasher. We get a glorious two days. Except you're soaked and falling with us and we'll go splat with us, said Doubting Drop. Your name should be a hint, Splasher. That puts a damper on things, said Splasher. It flapped its sopping wings a few times, but continued falling. I sure hope we're flying reindeer. Just stop it, cried Doubting Drop. You've wasted half my adult life with your ravings. I'm putting you on the naughty list, said Santa Drop. No toys for you. That's not a naughty list. You're just tracing letters in the air without a writing utensil. Well, I still hope you have a Merry Christmas, said Santa Drop. Too bad it's not a white Christmas. Maybe next year. Yeah, snowflakes fall slower, said Doubting Drop. It glanced at the rapidly approaching ground. Goodbye, all. Splat. Santa Drop and the eight reindeer hovered above for a moment, watching poor Doubting Drop's dissolution, like water in rain. Oh well, let's get going, Santa Drop said. Merry Christmas to all! The following morning, children everywhere awoke to the glorious sight of neatly wrapped cloud condensation nuclei under their trees. Okay, this next one is a premise that I, I always expect someone to try every year. So when I made the specials tag, I wasn't surprised that a few people actually tried it or some version of it. And I've gotten submissions in the past that tried to pull this off in one way or another. It just didn't work for whatever reason. So when I read this one, I was so happy that someone had finally, finally done this one in a way that's still fun, even if you totally know where it's headed. So here is... CSI Whoville by Katie Gill. Jesus Christ, Jerry. What am I looking at? Marcus Who took a long drag on his cigarette, looking down at the mess of blood, gore, and shattered bones in front of him. The poor bastard's corpse was mangled. Arms, leg, and head were intact, but what used to be called the chest was now an open cavity, exposed to the elements. The Santa suit that the victim was wearing was shredded, red fabric blowing in the breeze aside green fur. Jerry, the medical examiner, bent over the corpse, disgusted frown on his face as he gingerly peeled back some of the suit. There was a squelching sound as he did so. The clothes were saturated, almost fused to the skin due to the sheer amount of blood from the body. Shattering of the ribs, damage to most internal organs. The victim died within seconds of the event. But as for the cause of death, you're not going to believe this, Marcus. I've got a wife, a kid, and a dinner of roast beast to get back to. Give it to me straight. From the trajectory of the bone shards, it's obvious that whatever killed the man killed him from inside his own body. Something in there, well, it just about exploded. 
Add in the fact that certain organs were missing and aortic tissue was discovered a few feet away from the body? Get to the point, Marcus snapped. A quiet settled over the scene, only punctuated by the barely audible whimpering of a dog. It's hard to believe, but all the medical evidence adds up. If an internal organ is rapidly enlarged, the pressure inside would shatter bones, arteries, skin. Think of it like blowing up a balloon inside a paper bag. Blow it up enough and the bag would just... Jerry made a small popping noise with his mouth before turning back to look at the mangled corpse in front of him. With a sad sigh, he proclaimed his diagnosis. It's his heart, Marcus. The Grinch's heart grew three sizes that day, and it killed him instantly. What's funny about that one is that, like, all my readers ended up wanting to tweak it in different ways. It's such a, like, perfect last line for a story that I think everyone has their own way they'd want to build up to it. But I thought that one was spot on because it doesn't even try to hide where it's going, doesn't try to make it a surprise, just like teases it just enough that you know and you still enjoy the ride. Thank you, Katie, for finally scratching that itch. We have two more stories and both of them get the winner tag. The first is our stocking stuffer or a grab bag, quote unquote, category winner. This category is another reason I might do away with the contest because it's not a category. It's just a way to let people write whatever they can think of. So picking a winner is hard. Especially when there's an overall winner, because it just gets confusing, or it confuses me. And it's my contest, so it shouldn't be confusing, but until I can pay everyone at a pro rate, hint, hint, this is the only way I know to do things. So, one last time, if you two agree that this should be maybe an anthology show, maybe even two shows each year, then please consider donating, again, ko-fi.com slash weirdchristmas, ko-fi.com slash weirdchristmas. Donate any amount. And it all goes into the pot for next year. I would love to pay for each person to get $20 a story, maybe even, um, which would be way more than the official pro rate. Um, But that means I'd need at least like $400 per year beyond my hosting fees and all that. If you enjoyed the stories and can contribute anything to that plot, please do so, because I want this to be a real honest destination publication for folk, but I can't really do that until I get either stupid famous or well-known as the best outlet for genre flash fiction at Christmas, which... It's admit it's pretty niche and small field as it is. Or I just pay more. Paying more is way easier. So ko-fi.com slash weirdchristmas or hell, PayPal, weirdxmas at gmail.com. Weirdxmas at gmail.com. Okay, I won't do that anymore. Promise. Stories. First, we have the winner of the stocking stuffer category. This story is one that both Linda Radish and I agreed right off the bat was fabulous. And I don't know if I told her it was going to win anything or not. She wanted to leave that as a surprise. So Linda, merry surprise. But it is a story that's strange and sad. And we could just both smell something special about it. So here's My Father's Pine by Josh Carey. The Christmas tree didn't smell right this year. It had that bitter conifer smell, but something about it smelt warm. Not burnt or toasted, just warm. Dad wiped his hands on his jeans and told me to eat my soup. On day two, a sweetness had crept in, like dusty lemonade. Dad handed me some tinsel, but I said I was tired and ran upstairs. I could hear him sobbing through the floorboards. On day three, I found him sleeping at its base, his head resting between the branches. 
a photo in his hand. The room smelt of vinegar and unwashed dog. Dad looked pale. I tried eating something, but the air tugged at the back of my throat. I threw a blanket across his chest and opened the door to the garden to coax the fog outside. I pinched my nose and returned upstairs, praying for him to wake. The sharpness of winter stalked the house until morning, and I rose with misted breath. I gathered my duvet around me and tiptoed cautiously downstairs. It smelt like asphalt and parmesan, mixed with the angry tang of something rawer. Dad was no longer there. Just a damp outline of his torso. Fragments of denim blew in frosty eddies over the red-brown scuffs on the carpet. Head swimming with the thick acridity of the air, I pulled my sweatshirt over my nose and moved towards the fetid pine to drag it from the house. It was weighty and damp, but my hands held firm to the trunk and slowly it started to move. My lungs begged for air, but my esophagus held firm, the doorway nudging closer with each step. Then my foot slipped on the dew-soaked carpet, and the branches collapsed around my face, and the shock drew breath into my lungs, and I could smell cinnamon. I chanced a second breath. It was the smell of roasted chestnuts and marzipan, of sitting in an armchair by an open fire, of lying back on Christmas Eve, full and happy. It was the smell of closing your eyes, of family, the smell of Christmas. We had lots of good sensory stories this year. I was pleased. So often, like, flash fiction has lots of little bits of action cram-packed in tiny spaces. So really working on all that imagery was a treat. And stuff seems right for holiday stuff, too, with all the sights and the smells and whatnot. Even if, hopefully, it doesn't quite go in the direction of that one. But So this last one, the winner. Like I said, I'm a bit uncomfortable calling it the best story, but it's my show, my opinion. And this one I couldn't stop thinking about. It's honestly not the kind of thing I usually gravitate to because it's a weird Santa story. And I've even complained before and said, like, stop sending me evil Santa stories. Probably a good quarter or a third of all the entries each year are just different takes on Santa being mean or a creature or something like that. But this one, this one just hit my heart in a really weird, kind of painful kind of way that just stuck. And honestly, in the end, it may just be a couple lines that made it really stand out. Um, but the whole story is great. But there's this one small thing about it. Oh, I, should, I should stop talking. So it's also cool because the writer, John Nickel, told me this was his first official sale. And that is cool. A new writer, one to watch out for. That's a great little Christmas present to both of us. So congratulations, John. And here it is, the 2023 winner of the Weird Christmas Flash Fiction Contest, Hybrid by John Nickel. It slid down the chimney, mucus slippery blubber squelching. Cookies and milk and stockings awaited below. The scent of children lingered. Hungry, hungry. Tiptoeing around the cozy little room, its girth reflected the glow of twinkling lights. A tree stood by, strewn in garlands, horns, and bells. It remembered something, wanting something, before... But now, things were different. Cookies and milk disappeared into an orifice on its hairy belly. Inky space 
explosions, the burning of a vessel out on the ice. The host had never known what happened, from the prick of the proboscis to the insertion of the egg to the gradual scaling over and loss of scraggly white hair, the merging, two things become one. It pulled a stocking down and squatted. A mucoid ball was deposited, two, three. The stocking was hung again with care. A cache of boxes, brightly wrapped in foil, ribbons exploding gaily from their top, tumbled from a tatty sack. With a swish of its long tail, they aligned under the tree. It lurked its way up the stairs. Tiny snores came from a cracked door. In with a creak. A child lay slumbering, framed by moonlight. Leaning over, the thing inhaled. The child's breath was sweet like peppermint. A long, slow tongue unraveled, caressing the child's face, probing their ear, their nose, their soft, soft lips. A drip of slime fell onto their cheek. The child coughed. <coughs> the thing was gone, like an octopus shot into its hole, down the stairs, across the carpet, and up the chimney with a great sucking slurp. A close call. Its tail slapped wetly. Reindeer nickered, and the sleigh lumbered into the air. So many chimneys. As many as there were stars. It was forgetting something, but it would remember. Eventually. So many of the evil or mean or monster Santa stories are about the kids or the family suffering the cosmic horror of weird evil Santa, but this one is inside his or its head and that alienish hybrid thing, even if that's what's going on. Like, I like that it's kind of vague enough that it might be a good old xenomorph from the aliens, but it might be something else. You get in its head, and when the overwhelming feeling in that head isn't rage or hunger, or sentimentality or whatever, but a kind of wistful, forgetful longing for something just out of reach. And that's a direction I haven't seen before, and I love it. And it still kind of weirds me out and makes me sad, and that's why it won. So thank you all for listening. Thank you again to Daisy Shyglass and Dustin Perry for reading. Thank you so much to Linda Radish for working through all the entries with me. And for all my readers, especially my Rereading Wolf podcast partner James and his daughter Alexis. And my wife and kids, even my son's girlfriend, who puts up with my weirdness quite well, I'd say. There will still be more weird Christmas episodes this year. Linda Radish and I will be talking next about the messed up history of Christmas baking. Sorry to be late again, but life and illness and that's how it goes. So these episodes are there for posterity, become a lifelong holiday tradition. No one cares anymore that things like Miracle on 34th Street or Holiday Inn or Die Hard were released over the summer, right? And of course, these stories will last way longer in the popular imagination than those hack jobs. So finally, thank you again to everyone who participated this year, whether your story made the show or not. Since I don't wake up to G.I. Joe and Lego anymore, and my kids are more into clothes and grown-up stuff now, these are my presents every year. 
and the toys I anticipate and think about and get stupidly excited to see and share. If your story didn't make it on this year, or hell, even if it did, I really do hope you'll enter again next year. I only want this thing to get bigger, and if I could do two shows each year, how much merrier the world would be. So until next time, everyone, keep reading. Go read stuff by the authors you liked, especially if they're new to you, and most importantly, don't let Santa stuff you in his bulging, sweaty sack. <laughs>